we are in Isaiah chapter 17 tonight, if you'd like to open up there. And on Sunday morning, I'm going to take uh, a couple of verses out of, uh, out of Isaiah 17 and we'll, we'll look at them in a different light, um, verses 10 and 11. But tonight, we're just going to kind of look at the uh, expository study, the verse-by-verse study here uh, through Isaiah 17, look at all the verses. And then also, uh, we are going to look at the uh, future prophecies, some of these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. They haven't been fulfilled yet. Some of them have been fulfilled, as is the case often uh, with Isaiah's prophecies, as you're aware, if you've been here with us uh, for any length of time through this study. A um, couple of things to point out initially here in Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17 is not necessarily in chronological order. The uh, Bible translators, the scribes, the copyists, and the scholars who recorded the scriptures for us, they put them together in the order that they thought was best at the time. And we know that that Isaiah 17 was probably, according to historians, it was probably written around 732 uh, B.C. And some of the things that were predicted happened shortly after 732 B.C., And, of course, chronologically, we were in 712 B.C. when we were looking at the year that King Uzziah died uh, back in Isaiah chapter 12. I think it was verse 28. So the the Bible's not necessarily chronological in order. It's more uh, the way that they put the ideas together. So this is a series of judgments starting in uh, verse uh, uh, chapter 12 or 13, I don't remember now, maybe 14. I forget where we're at. I think it was 12 is where the, all the oracles of God started. The judgments or burdens or oracle of God against all these nations. And it goes all the way through chapter 23. So it seems to me and, and, and to the, the Bible scholars and the uh, commentators that I read, the theologians, that um, the, the scribes who put the scrolls together and copied the scrolls kind of found all of Isaiah's oracles or burdens that he had written over many decades against these nations at different times, and they compiled them all in one place to make it easy for us so that it's one theme, the oracles or the burdens or the judgments of God against all of these nations, Philistia, uh, Babylon, Moab. Um, Here we're going to be looking at Damascus, which is Aram or Syria, uh, and, and on it goes. And so this is not necessarily chronological, like beginning, middle, end, as you would imagine a chronology. It's kind of skips around. So understanding that, uh, let's pick up here in verse 1 of Isaiah 17. The burden or the oracle or the judgment of God against Damascus. And yes, it's the same Damascus that is a city in Syria, interestingly, today. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aror are forsaken. Aror was a uh, suburb, ancient suburb of uh, Damascus. There will be f- uh, they will be for flocks which will lie down, and no one will make them afraid. In other words, there's not going to be any people left in the city there of Aror or Damascus. Verse 3, the fortress also will cease from Ephraim. Ephraim's another name for the uh, ten northern tribes or Israel. The kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria or Aram. The ancient name of Syria, modern day Syria was Aram or Aram. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. And in that day, verse 4, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. Uh, now, this is a very fascinating prophecy, which had a contemporary fulfillment, which means that there, part of this was literally fulfilled just a few years after um, Isaiah wrote this in 732 B.C. Um, Aram uh, was, was judged. Uh, Damascus was attacked by the Assyrians, and then Israel was attacked by the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes, and they were actually carried away captive uh, by the Assyrians. 
But Damascus at that time was not totally destroyed to where it was a wasteland and there was nobody left and it was a ruinous heap and uh, it was forsaken and it was overrun by animals because there's no people. That's never happened in history in the city of Damascus. Uh, So we know that there is still yet a future prophecy related to uh, Damascus being destroyed. So there was a near contemporary fulfillment, partially fulfilled, and then there will be, again, a later fulfillment, end times fulfillment, still future for us, actually hasn't happened yet. Uh, Some Bible scholars believe, J. Vernon McGee being one of them, believe that this might take place during the tribulation period. It could take place uh, before the tribulation period, uh, but it's certainly going to be sometime toward the end when uh, when, when this happens and the end times when Damascus is going to be completely obliterated. Now, <clears throat> Damascus claims in Syria today to be the oldest living city in the world, which is interesting because according to the language here, it's going to stop being a city forever when this judgment happens that God is predicting. So we know that this judgment hasn't happened yet. Uh, because it's still a city today. And not only is it a city, it's the oldest living city in the world. It's at least 3,000. It's been occupied with people there as a city for at least 3,000 years, perhaps much longer than that. Uh, Jericho, uh, which is the West Bank of Jordan, used to be part of Israel, of course, but uh, the Palestinians claim it, or Jordanians. Uh, the Jordanians claim that Jericho is the oldest city of the world. Uh, The Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, Thessalonica claims that it's the oldest living city in the world. But most historians agree that Damascus probably is the oldest living city in history, where there's, it's always been occupied, the same place. Uh, Even though different kingdoms have come and gone, Damascus has always remained up until today. And as you know, today, Syria is a fiercely Muslim country a fierce enemy of Israel, uh, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, Syria was actually, in Damascus, a Christian stronghold. It was one of the uh, Middle Eastern strongholds for Christianity for the last 2,000 years, as many of you know, until ISIS came in and, uh, and uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, he basically started to allow ISIS to come in and, and, and Russia and Iran and Hezbollah and there's a civil war in Syria and then they just started killing all the Christians. You remember five, six years ago they were beheading women, children, Christians, pastors. Uh, ISIS was in Syria, in Damascus specifically. And so at one point Damascus actually had uh, 500,000 Christians Uh, recently, probably 10 years ago, there were 500,000 Christians living in Syria. Many of them had been there for 2,000 years. Remember Paul, uh, the apostle Saul, was on the road to Damascus when Jesus knocked him off his horse and called him into the ministry. Uh, And so Damascus is no longer a Christian uh, city. There are no Christians left in Damascus. They were all killed or they were driven out and they're refugees uh, in other places. And now Damascus is overrun by terrorists and by thugs. Uh, ISIS, ISIS thugs or, or, or Assad's thugs uh, uh, or Russia, Russian thugs or Hezbollah. They're all terrorists. Uh, and they've overrun the city uh, of Damascus. But uh, Damascus and Syria were really, you know, they weren't enemies of Israel because of their, uh, you know, their history with Israel and their history with, uh, w- with Christianity and so forth. But they are certainly an enemy of Israel today, although they're very, very weakened <clears throat> politically because, and militarily because of the civil war that's just ravaged the nation there for the last 10 years. But it is, uh, Damascus has always been a major tr- uh, city that crossed trade routes, and that's why it w- has always been uh, inhabited, and there's always been a city there because I guess it's a, a major ancient trade route uh, that people would pass through, and so they had trading partners for that reason and so forth. The Dutch uh, 18th century theologian, Vitringa said of Damascus, quote, Damascus has been destroyed oftener than any other town. It rises again from the ashes, unquote. And this was a 17th century uh, theologian or 18th century, early 1700s, who uh, studied the history of Damascus and came to this conclusion. It certainly uh, suffered its share of wars and battles, but it's always recovered from those attacks or from being destroyed, and it's rebuilt again and again and again. But 
the Bible predicts at this time it's going to be a ruinous wasteland, a heap. It's going to be utterly annihilated and destroyed, and it will not be inhabited again. So we know that it is yet future. So again, the near fulfillment, so looking first at the, at the near fulfillment, the contemporary fulfillment after Isaiah wrote it, because oftentimes, as you remember, a prophet would be tested as to whether or not the prophecy came to pass. And if it didn't come to pass and he made a prophecy, they'd take him out and they'd stone him. Imagine about all the false prophets today who make all these predictions online about what's going to happen and they prophesy all these things. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you were wrong once as a prophet, <laughs> they took you out and stoned you. Uh, but thank God we're not in the Old Testament times anymore because there wouldn't be anybody left that are Pentecostals out there. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to, we're Pentecostal too, but I, I don't have any patience for false prophets. They give people the wrong idea of God. They speak falsely for God, uh, and, and we need to be very careful about that because people put all kinds of crazy stuff on the Internet, and then they hear a prophecy or a prophet or somebody had a dream, and then they start sharing it with everybody, and it's totally unbiblical because these people, they don't study the Bible, some of them. Some of them do, uh, and, and I'm not knocking uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit by any stretch of the imagination. Only people who misrepresent God falsely uh, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, because they, they really do damage to the body of Christ and they do disrepute to the word of God. And so when a prophet would prophesy in the Old Testament, it would have to come true generally in his lifetime. Otherwise, they'd stone him. They'd say he's a false prophet. Uh, so when Isaiah gave this prophecy, there would be a modern fulfillment of the prophecy, and yet we know there's also a future fulfillment of the prophecy. So the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. It will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Arer, Aror are forsaken. There will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim or Israel, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. In that day it shall come to pass, the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. So this is actually a judgment not only against Aram or Damascus, ancient uh, Aram and Damascus, the capital city, but it's also against Israel because Israel was a wicked nation. The ten northern tribes full of idolatry, human sacrifice, as you know, and uh, they oftentimes allied themselves, the Isra Israelites allied themselves with uh, the Arameans. And so God is saying, you're both going to get judged. You know, both Israel and uh, Damascus are going to be judged by God. And this is exactly uh, what happened uh, not long after this prophecy was given, according to the historians. Uh, Assyria actually attacked Damascus and ravaged them. And then Assyria came and besieged uh, Israel in Samaria with their king Telglath-Pileziar, who was the king of Assyria. He came and he besieged Israel. He carried many uh, of the people of Israel away captive. And then Shalmazner, who was the next king of Assyria that came after Tiglath-Pileser, he came and he finished the job uh, later. And he, in 721, 722 B.C., he completely carried the nation, the ten northern tribes of Israel, into captivity, into Assyria, never to come back again. I mean, they were just, they were scattered. And they really, never really recovered uh, from the Assyrian uh, captivity and the siege that happened. And again, that was God's judgment because Israel had turned to go after foreign gods. Now, for the future fulfillment of this prophecy, because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the history. I, I, I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at the history of these wars and so forth in this study. Um, but what's fascinating here is the language used is undeniably speaking of a total destruction, a total annihilation, which we know has not yet happened, and it certainly didn't happen when the Assyrians attacked them after 732 B.C. So when we read in verse 1, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and will be a ruinous heap. Literally what that means, ruinous heap, 
is like beheaded. Like the nation is going to be beheaded. The head is going to be cut off. And as you know in, from the Bible and from ancient Middle Eastern culture, actually not even ancient, but modern Middle Eastern culture, they cut the heads off of their enemies, specifically the kings, which is like cutting the head off of the top of the government to say, you know, not only did we defeat you in war, we took the head of your king off. You're done. We have conquered you completely. You're not going to rise from the ashes again. And that's what it is speaking of here, that this city is going to have the head cut off. It will not recover from it, as you can't recover from being beheaded. Uh, and, you know, we, we know that with David and Goliath, after he killed Goliath with the slingshot, what did he do? He took his sword and he cut his head off and held his head up. Why? Because that was indicating your giant is defeated. Your champion is dead. You've lost this war. We're the victors. And indeed, they were the victors. You remember then King Saul, when he died and he was at war with the Philistines, what did the Philistines do with the body of King Saul? They cut his head off. They put his head on a post. They took it back to the Philistine cities there in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and they put it outside their gates, and they had the head of the king of Israel there. What were they trying to say? They were trying to say, Israel's not going to recover from this. We have the king's head. The head's been cut off of the nation. That's why David and his men went there and took the head of Saul off the wall and took it back to Israel and buried it, because David was saying, there's still a head in Israel. There's still a king in Israel. Israel's not beheaded. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's really a fascinating sort of a concept. But that's what he's talking about here. That's what the language says in the original language. Damascus is going to be beheaded. It's going to be a ruinous heap. It's going to be obliterated. Interestingly, with Saddam Hussein, when Saddam Hussein was captured, interestingly, when they hung him, what happened? The way they put the noose on his head, the, they put it too loose. His head came right off when they hung Saddam Hussein. He was beheaded. And so this is something that is known in the Middle Eastern culture. When you want to beat an enemy, you take the head off of the king or off of the ruler or off of the general or whatever it is, whoever it is that you're trying to uh, uh, obliterate and destroy. Now, well, one more thing about that, which is interesting, because, again, it's the Middle Eastern mindset. What did the 9-11 bombers try and accomplish here in America? They went after the Twin Towers. They attacked the Pentagon. Flight 93 uh, crashed, went down in Pennsylvania, I think it was. But that was headed for the Capitol, the Senate and the Congress, according to uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, and it is believed that they also went after... Air Force One, when George Bush actually was up in Air Force One at this time over the Atlantic Ocean, not exactly sure what was going to happen, uh, that they sent jets after him or they sent planes after Air Force One over the Atlantic Ocean, these bombers, other bombers, it's not recorded in the news, uh, but, um, and then uh, F-15s shot, shot them down actually because they wouldn't respond to the radio calls. They were going after Air Force One. So what was the point? What were they trying to say? They were trying to take the head off of our economy, take the head off of our government, uh, the, the legislative part of our government, Congress and the Senate, the Capitol building. They were trying to take the head off of our military, the Pentagon, and they were trying to kill the president, take the head off of the, of the executive branch because that's what the Middle Eastern mindset is. You take the head off of your enemy. In verse 2, he says, the cities of Aurora are forsaken. Again, Aurora was one of the suburbs uh, of ancient Damascus. And they will, be for, they will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. In other words, they're going to be uninhabited by man. That has not happened yet. It's going to be overrun by, 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 by animals, Wild animals or animals that are going to be there that will uh, not be afraid because there's no people there anymore. Again, it's future because it hasn't happened yet. Not only has the head of Damascus never been taken off and just, you know, completely obliterated, uh, but this has not happened before either. It's never been uninhabited in all of its history. So the amazing thing is, is that in the Septuagint, Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language um, 
200 years before Christ. Uh, it was written in Egypt, the Septuagint, by Greek scholars and uh, Hellenistic Jews and scribes because Aramaic Greek was the modern language of the time. So they copied the Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word that is used here, uh, or the phrase, the cities of Aurora are forsaken, literally means it will be forsaken forever. That's what the original language means. And we know this because Jesus used the same word to describe Jerusalem in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, you remember the disciples were there. They were showing Jesus the temple and the glories of the temple that Herod had, had rebuilt. Uh, one of the, really, one of the uh, uh, ancient wonders of the world, although it wasn't one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, the original uh, Solomon's temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, along with the hanging gardens of Babylon and so forth. Uh, but uh, Jerusalem was a gorgeous city. It was beautiful. And the disciples, you know, of course, they thought Jesus was going to come into his kingdom and they were going to be right there to rule with him. And uh, they thought they were going to be in Jerusalem, ruling from Jerusalem with King Jesus. And so they were like, look at Jesus. Look at how great all these uh, buildings are. Look at these walls of Jerusalem. And look at the temple, the glory of the temple. And Jesus said, concerning the temple and concerning the walls of Jerusalem, he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And so, indeed, this is exactly the word that Jesus used. It's going to be destroyed, and it's never going to be rebuilt in the same way again. And that's exactly what happened. The stones, some of the stones in Jerusalem, I've seen them. I've gone under the city of Jerusalem. You have to go down about 150 feet, down all kinds of stairs. It's real dark. But you see the foundation stones of ancient Jerusalem and they are ginormous. You have no idea how they move them there. Uh, they're huge. They're between three and 400 tons. That's 600,000 to 800,000 pounds. I mean, how would we move them today? Much less how did they move it? And they were stacked like this all over and all around the city uh, of Jerusalem, specifically uh, the temple. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And as you know, that's exactly uh, what happened when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed by fire when the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. They disassembled the temple and they even took out the surrounding walls around the temple and disassembled them as it is to this day. You can go look at the stones today. They're disassembled, as Jesus said they would be, because the fires in the temple... Uh, burned a bunch of people that ran in there for uh, uh, sanctuary when the Romans invaded in 70 AD and they threw fire in there. It all caught fire and all the gold and silver and bronze melted in the temple. That's where all the treasures were for the whole nation of Israel. And the Romans wanted all that uh, looty. They wanted all that uh, or, or loot, all the booty. So they, they actually disassembled, the engineers of the Romans disassembled uh, the temple and all the walls surrounding it in order to get to the gold and the silver and the bronze that had melted in the fires into the cracks and the crevices of the walls. So exactly as Jesus predicted it happened, and really uh, the, the Jerusalem has not been rebuilt since that time, not, not like it was uh, before. So when we see here that the cities of Aurora are forsaken and Damascus is going to be forsaken, it literally means here that this is going to be uh, forsaken forever. The cities will be forsaken and desolate. They're, they're not going to recover from it this time. It's going to be a ruinous heap, and it's going to be literally forsaken. Now, when will this happen? We, we don't know. We know Damascus is there today, so it, it hasn't happened yet. It's the, it's the capital of Syria. Uh, there's still people there today, so this has not happened yet. But uh, it is interesting that now... Syria is an enemy of Israel, where before, throughout their history, because of the Christian influence and so forth, they really weren't necessarily, just like Iran, they weren't a huge uh, enemy. Persia was not a huge enemy of Israel up until 1979 with the Islamic Revolution. Uh, but another thing that's interesting is that uh, Hezbollah, who is funded by Iran, they're kind of their military uh, branch for uh, Iran and the Ayatollah and so forth who said they want to wipe Israel out off the map, push them into the Mediterranean Sea and take the land for Allah back for Islam. 
you have Hezbollah right there in Syria fighting uh, against ISIS and the civil war and everything else, defending Assad, who's the dictator there. They hate Israel. Hezbollah hates Israel. They run Lebanon, uh, and, and they're always trying to figure out ways to attack Israel, though Israel has the best military in the Middle East and, and the best intelligence uh, in the Middle East. But you have Iran there, right there in Syria, right now. You have Russia, actually, right there in Syria, right now. You have Turkey also there in northern Syria right now. And why is that important? Well, because there is a war that is predicted in the last days in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We've looked at this here uh, in this study where you're going to have the nations of Russia, Iran. You're going to have Turkey. You're going to have Libya. And you're going to have Sudan or Ethiopia. These five nations are going to invade Israel at a time when Israel has been restored to their land, Ezekiel 37. In 38, they're going to attack them like a, like, like a storm. They're going to come upon the, the mountains of Israel. And Israel is going to be living at peace. They're going to be living securely as they are today. Israel has never been more at peace or secure as they are today. Uh, and they're going to come to take spoils of war or booty. Uh, and we know that the Turks want Israel's oil and their natural gas, the Leviathan oil field in the Mediterranean Sea. They're actually sending their gas, the natural gas, to Jordan, to Egypt, to uh, the island of Crete, through Crete up to Greece. From Greece, they're sending the oil to, or the gas, natural gas, the Israelis are, to southern Italy, and from Italy, they're building a pipeline into Western Europe. So the Turks want this for themselves. Uh, uh, Erdogan is trying to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, as you know. We've talked about this before. Um, Russia is threatened by Israel selling natural gas to Europe because most of Western Europe gets their natural gas from where? From Russia. So Russia is threatened by this. They would like to have access to this oil and natural gas in Israel. Uh, Libya is partnered with Turkey. And so you have all of the players right there. And then, of course, Iran. Israel just assassinated Iran's top nuclear physicist in a brilliant assassination. See, Israel looks at this and says, okay, you're enriching uranium. President Trump's going to be out of office in a couple of months, probably. Looks like the election was stolen from him, they're saying. This guy is the Oppenheimer who was the one who created the nuclear bomb for America to end World War II. This brilliant physicist, Iranian physicist, who is also a military man, and he heads up their defensive uh, uh, position. He's their top defensive physicist. Uh, and they have been on record as saying they want to develop a nuclear bomb or many nuclear bombs to destroy who? Israel. And so Israel has assassinated their top scientists numerous times. I think this is the fifth or sixth top nuclear scientist that the Israelis have somehow managed to assassinate in Tehran, in Iran, and get out safely uh, where they're not caught. And there's a mix-up of what really happened uh, the Iranians really were caught flat-footed. They didn't defend their top scientists. And this has set them back by years because they don't have anybody. They have junior scientists who can spin the centrifuges and enrich the uranium. And then once you get the uranium enriched to a certain level, then you need to take it and you need to develop the nuclear bomb, which is very complicated, as you would imagine. And not many scientists in the world have the nuclear uh, phys physicist experience or education to know how to take that enriched uranium and turn it into a weapon, weaponize it. But this man was the Oppenheimer of Iran, and he's now dead. So the Iranians are livid with Israel. Not only that, but Israel has been attacking Syria regularly for the last six years. Anytime Iran sends missiles or missile technology or missile defense systems through Hezbollah into Syria, Israel blows them up. Israel attacks them and blows them up so that they don't have a base to attack Israel from because Syria is right there on the border. As a matter of fact, I've been to the Golan Heights 
uh, I was there when you could hear the bombs exploding in Syria for the Civil War in 2015, standing on the Golan Heights with the United Nations soldiers in their blue hats and their blue uniforms, uh, and you hear all the bombs exploding in Syria. It's that close to Israel. Syria is on their border. And so Israel doesn't mess around. But there is going to come a time when those five nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, and Sudan, and or Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia really encompasses Eritrea, uh, southern Egypt, and this whole area. There's a lot of Muslim strongholds with Al-Shabaab there that have mercenaries right now working with Turkey in Libya so that Turkey could take some of the Mediterranean Sea. I follow all this stuff. I don't know if you find this interesting, but I follow this news. So uh, it's just amazing. Everything God predicted is happening. Everything that God predicted would happen in the last days is happening. All the players are there. But what is interesting about the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion of Israel is who's not attacking Israel in that war? It's not Syria. It's not Lebanon. It's not Egypt. It's not Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's not Iraq. It's not Jordan. Uh, Israel has already fought wars with all these other nations. And now they're either at peace with them or the nations are completely obliterated. Like Lebanon is completely destroyed. You remember Beirut exploded over the summer. Some chemicals, nitrate, uh, um, uh, exploded at the docks, at the port in Beirut that Hezbollah had put there, no doubt, to make missiles to bomb uh, Israel and somehow all of their chemicals exploded and it just destroyed the port there uh, in Beirut and destroyed a good part of the city of Beirut, Lebanon. So Lebanon is a, just a disaster. They, they, can't, they can't even, their uh, economy is collapsing and everything else. So Lebanon's not a threat. Syria, you would think, would be involved in this attack, but they're not. Why? Because something's going to happen to Syria. Something's going to happen to Damascus. Damascus is going to be obliterated. And some Bible scholars uh, believe that it's going to be perhaps even a nuclear attack, either a nuclear, biological, or chemo uh, chemical attack against Damascus is going to make it uninhabitable because of the damage that's done and everything being kind of poisoned. And so um, now not only is Damascus completely ob obliterated at, at this time, but Israel, future Israel, modern-day Israel, is also injured or they suffer during this sort of attack, which is interesting. Uh, this is what he says in verse 3, after he says that Damascus is going to be beheaded and it's going to be forsaken forever and overrun by animals. In verse 3, he says, the fortress also will cease from Ephraim. And again, Ephraim is another name for Israel, the ten northern tribes the kingdom of Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, and they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, Jacob's another name for Israel, will wane, and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. And so some Bible scholars and prophecy buffs will say that they believe that there's going to be perhaps some sort of an exchange between Syria and, and Israel, where either Israel retaliates, let's say Syria attacks Israel, and Israel retaliates with overwhelming force, uh, or this perhaps nuclear-type explosion that hits Damascus. It could even be um, Iranian technology that's there. Who knows? Hezbollah. Uh, that, that Israel is also going to suffer some of the effects of this attack, but it's not going to destroy the nation of Israel. And again, uh, this could happen any time. Uh, the stage is set. We don't know when it's going to happen. But according to the scriptures, it is going to happen. The Middle East is a total powder keg today, uh, as you are well aware. Now, some people think that this may also be part of the Great Tribulation period uh, because we read in verse 9, skipping ahead, in that day his strong cities will be forsaken, a forsaken bough, and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. And so some people see in this the desolation uh, that is related to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which is halfway through, three and a half years into the tribulation uh, period. Perhaps it is. Uh, perhaps it is during the 
seven-year tribulation period. Uh, we know that during the great tribulation period, according to Zechariah chapter 13, uh, two-thirds of the Jews are going to die. Two-thirds. And one-third will survive the great tribulation period. So perhaps this is tied in to the Antichrist and tied into the great tribulation period. We, we're not uh, for sure. But in verse 5 he says, after he says that the glory of Jacob or Israel will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean, he says in verse 5, it shall be as when the harvesters, the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim, or Rephaim. Verse 6, yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord of hosts. So agriculturally, when Damascus blows up or is destroyed and Israel suffers as a result simultaneously in the last days, it's going to really damage their agriculture. And there's only going to be a little bit left to glean from their agriculture. And they have one of the most dynamic agricultural centers in all of the world actually there uh, today. It's interesting that they've been shaking nut trees apparently for a long time. They shook the olive trees, just like they shake our walnut trees here uh, uh, every year. So he's saying it's going to be like the shaking of an olive tree to, to, to get the um, olives to fall down. Two or three olives at the top. So there's not going to be a whole lot left. Four or five olives in its most fruitful branches as a result of what's going to happen here. Great agricultural damage to Israel, but Israel will survive not Damascus. Verse 7, in that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. So at this time there's going to be idolatry in the land and the people are going to after this uh, judgment happens, that God allows to happen uh, to Damascus and then Israel, uh, they are going to look to heaven. They're going to have respect for the Holy One of Israel, who we know is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who's going to come and save Israel at the end of the tribulation period. But it's interesting that they're not going to look anymore to their altars. Uh, they're not going to respect what their fingers have made, indicating the gods of the nations, specifically Ashtoreth and Baal. And the Canaanite goddess Ashtoreth of fertility and the Canaanite god Baal, who were supposedly married. Baal was the god of power uh, and war and, and, you know, money. And Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility or sex or lust. And we know that when they worshipped Ashtoreth, they would have unwanted pregnancies and then they would take the children from these unwanted pregnancies typically because the people would go to the temples of Ashtoreth they would have temple prostitutes people would pay to be with the prostitutes that would be their worship of, of Ashtoreth same with Venus and Diana and the other goddesses of fertility throughout the ages and then they'd have all these unwanted babies with the prostitutes and they would then take the babies and offer them as human sacrifices to Baal or to Molech who was the god of pleasure and so uh, uh, in that day, they're no longer going to look to the gods that they make with their own hands, the gods of this world, sex, power, money, pleasure, uh, all the gods that are still worshipped to this day. You know, in America, we don't have little statues, but we certainly worship the god of sexuality and sexual perversion. Uh, we have unwanted pregnancies as a result of the worship of a modern-day Ashtoreth. And we abort the babies because they're unwanted. And that's really a sacrifice to the devil it, from the devil's perspective and from God's perspective. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons I believe God is going to judge our nation. I believe the judgment has already started. Because we have not stopped aborting babies in this country. No matter who we put on the Supreme Court, how many people we've gotten elected that are pro-life... We are still continuing to abort more babies in the nation today in America, really, than any other nation in the history of the world. Uh, we're up somewhere over 62 million babies that have been aborted, that we've known have been aborted on the record since uh, Roe v. Wade in 1971, 1972. And we haven't stopped. I mean, uh, 
California is still uh, aborting babies in the middle of the pandemic. So are m- most of the cities around the nation. And so uh, we, have, we have innocent blood on our hands as a, as a nation. We're uh, worshiping the God of sex through homosexuality, through sexual immorality, through pornography. All the filth that we are putting onto the internet is going all over the world. Most of it is made right here in California, Southern California, Hollywood, and uh, San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, and so forth. And you don't think that God's going to judge America? I mean, you, 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 you'd have to be really ignorant about the character and the nature of God. It's only, he hasn't judged us yet because he's given us patience. He's given us time to repent. But America's not turning back to God. Even in the middle of a pandemic, we're not turning back to God. We're turning to government and to man and to money to bail us out. And so I believe the judgment of God upon America has already begun. And I think things are going to continue to get worse for us. Unless there's a great revival and a great national repentance that would have to start in the church. But it's not happening in the church, I could tell you. I mean, you're here tonight. Bless you for being here. Uh, But most churches are shut down and most Christians are not in a hurry to come back together. Uh, Certainly they're not repenting of the wickedness of their own sins, much less the abhorrent, vile wickedness of the nation of America. We've become so desensitized to the filth, it's, it's like we don't even notice it because we've been immersed in it. It's like being in a sewer. We don't even smell it anymore. But God smells it, and the judgment of God will come. Otherwise, he's not the God that judges sin. And we know he is a God that judges sin. He's just given us time to repent. So he continues in verse 9 and says, In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Verse 10, here's the reason. Here's the reason God is giving that this judgment will come. He says, because... You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day, you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in that day of grief and desperate sorrow. So God is telling both Damascus and Israel that the judgment is coming because you've turned away from me. And remember, up until 10 years ago, Damascus was a Christian city. Assad and all of his father and grandfather and the dictators before him didn't really do anything to the church. They allowed the church to flourish in Syria. It was like an ancient, uh, you know, national treasure for them, that they had so much history there in Damascus, Christian history, all the way back to uh, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, But not anymore. They're a Muslim nation now. And if you're a Christian, they'll kill you there. And uh, if ISIS is around, they'll take your head off. And so they have forgotten the God of their salvation in Damascus. There's not going to be any going back or saving Damascus, uh, apparently. They're just going to be judged. But for Israel, Israel also had forgotten the God of their salvation. So many times, Israel, just like America, has forgotten the God of our salvation. I mean, our nation is only great because we were a Christian nation at one time, and we had Christian founders. Uh, And they wrote a a, a Christian constitution. They gave us all of our rights and our government and so forth. But as we get further and further away from our history, we rewrite history, tear down all of the statues, uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, tear down all the statues of all of our great uh, uh, presidents and, and, and all of our great... Uh, uh, patriarchs who founded this nation, our founding fathers, they're trying to reinvent our history and remove Christianity from the foundation, and they want to actually destroy the Constitution. Why? Because it ties into our Christian faith, that our rights come from God, not from government. We have certain inalienable rights that were granted to us by our Creator, not by any man or any man-made government. They can't have that. Socialism, communism, Marxism, any totalitarian, oligarch sort of a country, they can't have anybody uh, that is over them. They have to be on top. The government has to be the head. The government has to be the one that gives you your rights, not God. And so uh, they are working, actively working, to destroy our Constitution uh, and to destroy our nation by destroying the history of our nation. 
And so Israel was those who had forgotten the God of their salvation. Remember, during the Great Tribulation period and the Tribulation period prior to the Great Tribulation period. So the Tribulation period seven years. It starts in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, when the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, creates a covenant with Israel and the nations, a peace treaty of sorts, or a covenant, or an agreement, so that Israel is able to rebuild their temple, which they want to rebuild their temple so they can start offering animal sacrifices again. They're ready to do it. They just have to have the political uh, environment which allows them to do it. So we know that's when the Antichrist will be revealed, when he signs a peace deal with Israel and Israel rebuilds their temple. That's how you know it's the Antichrist. I don't plan to be here. I plan to be at the rapture, which is going to happen before this happens. But there will be many people who will be here for this. And then the Antichrist is basically, they're going to, the Jews are going to see the Antichrist as their Messiah. They're going to say, hey, this political leader is giving us the right to rebuild our ancient temple so that we could offer animal sacrifices and go back to following the ancient 3,500-year-old Mosaic law as Moses described in the law, the Pentateuch, about how they're supposed to worship God with lambs and uh, goats and bulls and sacrifices and uh, all the rest. And so they're going to see the devil as Jesus Christ. They're going to see the devil, the Antichrist, as their Messiah. And so as a result of them being blinded by who this really is. Remember, Jesus says, I come to you in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But one who will come in his own name, speaking of the Antichrist, him you will listen to, Jesus told the Jews. Uh, because they rejected him as their Messiah when he came. They rejected him as their Messiah, which is opening them up to the deception of believing that the Antichrist is actually their Messiah until the Antichrist, three and a half years into the tribulation period, which kicks off with the signing of the covenant in Daniel chapter 9 for a seven-year period of time with Israel. Halfway through that, he's going to be killed or apparently killed according to Revelation chapter 13, assassinated or killed in some way, or it's believed that he's dead, he's going to be resurrected. Remember, he's a counterfeit Christ. He wants to do everything like Jesus does because he's a false Christ. He's a counterfeit, a counterfeit trinity, the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast or the antichrist, the false trinity. He's a false messiah. He's going to die and then he's going to be raised again, or at least that's what people are going to think. And it's at that point when he's killed or appears to be dead and he comes back to life, appears to, to have been dead, then he's going to say, I am God, bow down and worship me. And that's when the Jews are going to know they made a mistake. But they are going to suffer terribly as a result of that mistake. As I mentioned earlier, two-thirds of Israel will be killed during the Great Tribulation period. And those who are not killed must flee Jerusalem into the place that God has prepared for them. Revelation 12 talks about the place in the wilderness where God is going to protect them, likely the area of Petra uh, in modern-day Jordan, the rock city of Petra. We've looked at all of this. So they are going to pick the wrong guy as their Messiah. He's going to betray them. He's going to turn on them to kill them. Uh, and then Jesus, the real Messiah, is going to return and save the day. He's going to come back on his white horse, and he is going to destroy the Antichrist he is going to destroy all the armies of the Antichrist who have come to destroy Jerusalem. And that's when they are going to look upon him whom they pierced. And they're going to mourn for him as though they're mourning for an only son. Zechariah chapter 12 tells us. And then all of Israel will be saved. Revela uh, Romans chapter 11. Paul the Apostle speaks about national salvation for the whole nation of Israel at that time. But it's going to be very, very difficult for the Jews uh, during that time who see the Antichrist as their Messiah. He continues in verse 12. Now he's actually pivoting and talking to, so initially he was talking to Damascus. He was talking to Israel. Now he's going to talk to the nation that came and attacked Damascus and destroyed Israel, carried Israel away captive, which is Assyria. And so we read this in verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. 
The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Verse 14, then behold at eventide trouble, and before morning he is no more, or they are no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Now what is fascinating about this prophecy is that this prophecy was actually fulfilled. The judgment against Assyria came later in Judah's history. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah, the two southern uh, tribes, Judah and Benjamin, made up the nation of Judah. The ten northern tribes made up the nation of Israel. 721 B.C., Israel taken away captive by the Assyrians. But then the Assyrians come back and they try and capture Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what God is telling them. You're going to come to my nation. You're going to rush like the rush of many waters. But God is going to defend his people. He says God will rebuke them. Rebuke them. They will flee away. They'll be chased like chaff of the mountains before the wind. And then he says this, almost specifically telling us how he was going to do it. He says, then behold, at eventide and before the morning, they are no more. The nation that comes against them are no more. It's like they're all, the whole army is destroyed in one night is what God is saying is going to happen. Remember, this was written in 732 B.C., decades before the Assyrians would actually come and attack King Hezekiah when Isaiah was a much older man. Isaiah was still the prophet to King Hezekiah, but it was much later in their history that this actually happened. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 37, you don't have to hold your place there in, in Isaiah 17, but if you, if you turn to Isaiah 37, we will read here the accounting of what actually happened to fulfill this prophecy. In Isaiah 37 and verse 8, we read this. Then the Rabaksha, this was the spokesperson, the translator who was speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria there besieging Jerusalem and Judah. The Rabaksha returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, now Hezekiah was a righteous, godly king in Judah. He says in verse 10, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Goes on and Haran and Rezeb and, Rezeb, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. He says, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sepharvim, Hena and Eva? Well, these were all nations and kings that Assyria had wiped out. I mean, they were like unstoppable at this time. They'd already taken captive and destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel and, and, you know, just cleaned house with a bunch of other nations around there. They were the regional power at the time. Verse 14, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They were fearsome. They were unstoppable. Truly, Lord, uh, verse 19, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's 
hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. So Hezekiah, we're going to look at this. We'll be here uh, eventually in his, uh, Isaiah 37. We're in Isaiah 17 now, making our way through the book. We'll be here eventually, and we'll look at this in some more detail. But basically, Hezekiah was a righteous king. He loved the Lord, and he humbled himself before God. You know, this powerful king of Assyria came to destroy them. And, uh, and they were actually, the Rebekah was actually, it was like psychological warfare. They were speaking to the people in native uh, uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, the language of the time, so that the people of Israel would be scared, or the people of Judah. They were saying, the Rebekah was saying, look, no one's been able to stop us, and you're not going to be able to stop us. I mean, Judah was not a powerful, really a powerful nation, not certainly powerful enough to stand up to Assyria, and they knew it. And they're saying, we could do this the easy way or the hard way, but don't count on your God to save you. Uh, you know, even Israel we defeated. And, and, you know, he had your God too. Jehovah was, was Israel's God, and we carried him away captive. But God gave up on, uh, on Israel because of their wickedness and their idolatry. But God preserved Judah and Jerusalem uh, because it's a city of the great king and of the Messiah. And so they're saying, look, just give up, give in. Uh, they were besieging the city of Jerusalem, and we don't want to kill you, uh, just surrender. And we'll just take you away like we do to all the other nations that surrender to us, and we'll replant you somewhere else uh, in some other land. And Hezekiah takes this letter that was written, you know, basically saying these things, and he lays it out before God, and he just humbles himself before the Lord, the king. And he, and he prays this beautiful prayer, just humbling himself, acknowledging you're the God of heaven. You're God alone. You uh, made all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. You're the king of kings, he's saying. And, and he says, do you hear the words of the Rebekah? Do you hear the words of the wicked king of Assyria, Sennacherib? And they're treating us like we're one of these nations that worship other gods. And because and, and, Hezekiah knew that if God did not save them, there's no way that they would have been able to defeat this enemy. It was impossible. They were facing impossible odds. And once you're besieged, eventually you run out of food and, 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 and so forth. And so you, you, you can't exist forever when an army is besieging you and cut you off. So the Lord answers the prayer of the king Hezekiah through the word of Isaiah the prophet in verse 21. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, how despised you, laughed you to scorn, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? So this is God speaking to the king of, uh, of Assyria. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon, right there on the border of Judah." I will cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to the fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water. I've dug wells, in other words, and provided water for my troops. And with the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. And they had an army of 185,000 encamped there on the border of Judah. Did you not hear it long ago, how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it, now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling. You're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. So God is saying, I know you. I know what you're doing. I know who you are. Um, the other inhabitants had little power against you. 
They were confounded because God had allowed Assyria to be his instrument of judgment against all these other nations. But then Assyria went too far. They tried to go after Jerusalem, and that's where God prevented it from happening because Jerusalem is the city of the great king, of the Messiah. So he says, but I know your dwelling place. You're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. What they would do when they would conquer a city who would fight them is if they didn't kill you and you tried to fight them and you didn't surrender willingly, they would take you away with in this way, with hooks in your nose and bridles in your lips to where they would literally pull their slaves of the conquered nations with hooks in their noses, you know, like an animal, like an oxen or something, uh, or, or with a bridle in their mouth like a donkey or a horse, just to totally insult the people and to torture the people. So God's saying, I'm going to put my hook in your nose. You think you're going to put your hook in my people's nose and drag them away to Assyria? He says, no, I'm going to put my hook in your nose. I'm going to pull you away. I'm going to bridle you and drag you away from my uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and I'm going to turn you back the way you came. I'm going to send you back to Nineveh, to Assyria. They, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Verse 30, he says, this shall be a sign to you. Well, let's skip that. That's the promise to, to Judah. Skip to verse 33. So thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. These are all the ways that they would besiege a city and conquer it in the ancient world. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake, for the Messiah's sake, his son, the Messiah. And so we read how God did it in fulfillment of this prophecy, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses. They were all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and he went away, and he returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the hand of Ararat. Then Azarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So exactly as God said was going to happen to them, happened. The army was destroyed. And again, if you look back in Isaiah 17 and you look at verse uh, 14 and 13 when it says the nations will rush, but God will rebuke them, rebuke them. They will flee far away. They will be chased like the chaff of the mountains. Verse 14, then behold at eventide trouble and before morning he is no more. Speaking of the army that was there at, at, at Jerusalem besieging them trying to conquer Judah. God defended his people. They didn't have to shoot an arrow. They didn't have to go to war and, war and use their swords or use their, their spears or their cavalry or their chariots or anything because they wouldn't have won. If they fought Assyria, they would have lost. God fought for his people. And there's a principle there that uh, as God's people, we always have the promises of God that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Oftentimes, we can't defend ourselves. Oftentimes, God must defend us because the enemy is too great or the challenge that we're facing is too big for us and we just can't handle it. And that's when we ought to, as Hezekiah did, humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, you know, we need you. I can't fix this. I can't save myself. And God is so faithful that if you truly surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, he will meet you right where you're at and he will save you from all your sins. And he will help you to put the pieces of your life, the broken pieces of your life. We're all broken people before we come to Christ. Back together again. And that's what he does. He saves us. He restores us. He rebuilds us. And then he fashions us into an image like unto his son. So that we can become like Christ. And it's a miracle. I've seen it so many times. I saw it in my own life. I've seen it so many times as a pastor 
the, the, the dregs of society that God saves and he uses them to be his ministers, his servants, uh, the people who God uses to do great things. And so whatever you're facing tonight, whatever is coming in the future, I, I do not fear. I truly do not fear what's coming, although I think it's going to be bad and I think things are going to get worse. Um, I trust in my Lord. I know he's on the throne and I know he predicted all that's happening. He foretold us so we would not be surprised. And I believe that God is going to do a great work through the Christians who continue to stand strong in these last days. Shall we pray? Father, thank you again for the promises of your word. Thank you for the prophecies, Lord God, that show us that it's the hand of God and not the hand of man only who wrote your word, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you call us your people. What an honor it is to be called your people, Lord. Christian means Christ one. We thank you, Father God, for salvation offered through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your precious Holy Spirit, Lord, who you give to each one of your people, the believers who are born again. And we thank you, Lord God, that through your Holy Spirit and by your word, you conform us into the image of your son. You transform us by the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless us. You'd continue to help us. You would continue to meet all of our needs and you would continue to strengthen us, Father God, that we would be bold for you in these last days. Bless your people tonight. Thank you for each one that's here. I pray a special blessing upon their lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.